Welcome again to our online ministry here at South Sub Church. Thank you for joining us. We are in the middle of a series called The Gospel. And this is message five in our series. We're going to be looking at what does a gospel day look like? What does a gospel life look like? Now, of all of the messages, this is probably one of the most practical messages uh, in the series, particularly because some of the direction Paul gives us in chapter four, the latter part of chapter four and chapter five is some of the most pragmatic writings Paul gives here. So uh, let's uh, look into God's word. If you have your Bible or your tablet or however you read God's word, uh, we're going to begin reading at uh, Ephesians chapter four picking up in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger And clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And then in chapter 5, over to verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, Mrs. Barnes was my reading and writing teacher when I was in fifth grade. Her classroom was the last classroom down the fifth grade hall on the left. Mrs. Barnes was uh, one of my favorite teachers. She... uh, 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 led her classroom with great skill because it was uh, the school that I was going to that year was one of those schools where uh, it was sort of an open plan. So you had uh, the hallway and then each of the rooms that went off the hallway didn't have doors and they were all open. I sat in the back row of her classroom and frankly (laughs) because of that was often easily distracted by things that were going on out in the hall. Well, on one particular day, uh, a fight broke out between two of my classmates out in the hallway. It began with them circling one another, calling each other's names, shoving one another. And then suddenly, the classrooms all along the fifth grade hallway just cleared, and all of the students came running out, and they circled my two classmates who were fighting. Now, you have to understand, this was about 1979, when fighting in school was, frankly, 
kind of a student pastime. It was one of the ways that especially the boys established their pecking order. That kind of stuff probably wouldn't be tolerated today. As I watched all of this unfold, sitting in the back of Mrs. Barnes' classroom, I could see the crowd grow. And, uh, and, and as those two fifth-grade gladiators uh, watched the crowd gather around them, their violence with each other escalated. No longer were they just shoving and yelling, but now they were beginning to trade windmills that missed their mark and write jabs that did little damage. Mrs. Barnes, who was up at the front of the classroom, came running through the class out into the hall, and ignoring the boys who were fighting, she began to bark at the crowd of kids that were circling them. Get back to your classroom and quit messing with these fools who are fighting. That's what she said. Man, I love Mrs. Barnes. Now, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 15 of Ephesians, Paul uses the word or words that refer to speaking nine times. In chapter 4, verse 15, he says, speaking the truth in love. In verse 25, speak the truth. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Verse 31, let slander be put away. uh, Chapter 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. Verse 12, it is shameful even to speak of the unfruitful works of the darkness. Verse 19, address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, today, I want to look at one verse with you. One verse that not only encourages how to speak, but one verse that I hope will frame how we are thinking as a congregation and you are thinking as a beloved follower of Jesus Christ, how you might speak the gospel in everyday life. It's one of the better verses in this whole collection of verses because in it Paul actually gives us some guidance on how to do what Paul is calling us to make a part of everyday life and that is being attentive to how we speak so the key verse chapter 4 verse 29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Physicists say that sound waves are basically kinetic energy. And kinetic energy produces friction, friction produces heat, heat produces pressure, and pressure helps form radiation. And energy never, ever dies. It's always conserved. That's what physicists tell us. So that means, if you think about it, that the day that you screamed at your kids and that came out of your mouth, that scream is still going forth somewhere in the universe, maybe not sound anymore, but the energy of that uh, outburst is still out there. Whether it was something unkind that you said to your spouse, it's still out there. You see, when we speak you can't put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube. 
when we speak, it's out there forever. Whether it's a good thing and brings damage, I'm sorry, whether it's a bad thing and brings damage, or whether it's a good thing and brings blessing, what we say, we can't ever unsay. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that Paul gives us some guidelines to help us control our tongue. Now, you've probably heard how the Bible speaks about the tongue. In James chapter 3, verses 7-9, through 9, For every kind of beast can be tamed, but no human being can tame the tongue. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We all know that, don't we? Well, let's see what we can do about getting ready to speak the gospel to our neighbors. I want to share with you the ENG principle. Now, I'll have to admit, I'm not the most creative guy on our staff, but I hope that it will help you think about uh, how we speak, how you speak, how our congregation speaks, how the church speaks to the world. The ENG principle from Ephesians 4.29. Look there at what Paul says. Let no corrupting life co uh, talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. E, edifying. That which fits the occasion, that which is needful, needful, and that which is grace-filled. The ENG is what we're saying edifying, is what we're saying needful, is what we're saying grace-filled. So point one. As you find yourself in situations where you speak, be mindful. And what I, is what I am saying edifying? Is it edifying? Now, in the English Standard Version, from which I'm reading, it's translated building up. And most translations use the word edifying. Is it edifying? But edifying, I guess that's kind of a preachy uh, church word, isn't it? But edifying actually... Is, is probably the best word. In, in Old English, uh, when we start to see the word kind of emerge as an English word sometime around the 11, 12, and 1300s, it literally means to edify, meant to build a house. We get the word edifice from it. It really is probably the best word and is the best word to translate the word that's in the original language of the New Testament. Because that word literally means to build a house. Is what you're saying, building a house. Now, I think, I think if you remember, we talked about this at our, in our first message. It, it really is closely related to the word that Paul uses in chapter 1 of Ephesians in verse 10 when he says that Christ has come to unite all things in Him. Remember when we talked about that? We said that the word unite there carries a meaning of bringing one into the household, of bringing one into the family, recognizing that we too have been brought into the family because it's not our family, it's Christ's family. Uh, probably one of the more commonly known teachings that Jesus does that uses this word comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, when Jesus tells the story about the wise man who builds, who builds his house on the rock who edifies on the rock, and the foolish, well, there's Miss Barnes again, and the fool builds his house on the sand. When the storms come, which house stands? Which edifice stands? The one on the rock, right? Now, it might be worthwhile, just for this quick second, to remember 
that many of the storms that we find ourselves in are of our own making and probably because we opened our mouth when we should have kept it shut. Paul is reminding us that part of what God is doing through us, remember that's part of the that's part of our understanding of good works. What God is doing through us is He is building up others through us. When we speak well, God is speaking life, encouragement, strength into the lives of other people. That is God's intention. But when we speak poorly of others, when, when we say things that we know tear down, then we're offering our tongues to the demons who want to tear down, who want to sow division, who want to cause confusion, who want to birth strife. Is what I am saying edifying? Is a question we ought to be asking before we speak. Is it building up to the one to whom I am talking? Is it building up of the one about whom I am talking? Is my conversation seeking to look for a solution? Or am I just enjoying wallowing in the problem? Is it edifying? Point two, is it needful? Now, Paul asks, does it fit the occasion? And I think that's a pretty good translation. The word Paul is using here is really, uh, does it fit the business that we are doing? There's a little business book that I have read several times uh, throughout my adult life, and I, I recommend it to folks. Not everybody finds it interesting. It's not really earth-shattering. But it has some practical advice in it that I've really found helpful, and it's entitled Broken Windows, Broken Business. In this short little book, it talks about how we eventually stop seeing the broken windows around us. We get used to them, but others notice them. He has a chapter on how one restaurant chain suffered a loss in business because they stopped keeping the bathrooms clean. Apparently, one of the biggest drivers of where we go out to eat is how clean the bathrooms are. At least that's what the studies say. Who would have thought? Businesses that forget why they are in business lose. Now, that's probably not the best sentence in the world to give to you, or the best example in the world, especially after last week's South Sub Church is not a cruise ship remark. But in our real-world conversations... Most that start for appropriate reasons can quickly turn into complaints and grumbling. What's the business? What's the purpose of our conversation? No one really likes the person who comes to the neighborhood cookout who spends the whole time complaining about the homeowners association's rules about how high the mailboxes can be. The cookout is for fellowship, for building relationships, might even be a pre-event for a, for a football game. Now look, I, I know that some meetings can accommodate and actually launch methods and ideas that might improve things, so I get that. Having coffee with a friend and talking about ways that your neighborhood can be safe and fun, how it can do a, a safe and fun back-to-school event. But talking about how the, 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 the Jones family kids are neighborhood terrors it's not the business, unless, of course, that leads to a plan to mentor the Jones family 
whose parents are probably working two jobs to pay the bills and the kids are having to babysit themselves. What Paul is saying here is let your conversations be needful. Let them be directed to the business that is hand. What does the occasion call for? And stick to that. Is it edifying? E. Is it needful? N. Is it grace-filled? G. Grace. And we know what that means, right? Grace is receiving something that we do not deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. The question Paul is asking us to consider is, is what I am saying, does it give grace? Is it grace-filled? Now, grace, I think, is something all of us want, especially if it's our guilt that just, has just been exposed. And yet, at the same time, it's the one thing that we tend to be most hesitant to give to someone else who has done something wrong, especially if we're the victims or we're the ones that suffer because of another person's inappropriate actions or words. Ironically, oftentimes when we receive grace, it can actually mess with our heads. I've seen people respond to grace with shame, with anger. I've seen it end relationships, cause folks to repeat the behavior that they received grace for over and over and over again because it didn't have any consequences. And friends, here is where good Christian doctrine can improve your life. Now, you might have heard the phrase, that person really deserves a little grace. Well, doctrinally, that's impossible. If you deserve it, it isn't grace. I'm not sure what it is, but I know it's not grace. Why? Because grace is undeserved. Grace is receiving something we do not deserve. You can ask for it, you can hope for it, you can pray for it, but the moment we think we deserve it, we've just messed up royally. Now, listen, you, you know this. When, when you earn something, it's a fair trade, right? I work for X number of hours, I'm given X number of dollars. Even before there was a monetary system, the barter system was probably the greatest expression of this. A, a, a farmer might give um, a milkmaid some eggs from his hen house, and the milkmaid would give the farmer a gallon of milk. I remember when I was a young pastor, uh, still finishing up my seminary, the first church I had, a little church uh, in Bourbon County, Kentucky, couldn't even afford to pay me. So the ladies of the church each Sunday would bring me a couple of bags of groceries from their, from their own pantry, some, some canned tomatoes, some eggs, some chicken, get me through the week. There was a local farmer in the church, and he would invite me out to his farm, and he would fill my car up with gas from the, from the tank that he kept on his farm uh, that he used for his farm equipment. I later found out that that's actually illegal, but that's another story. It was months, probably about five or six months, before the church started bringing in enough money to pay me. 
And frankly, after I started receiving a paycheck, I would often wonder, I think I had it better off back when I was getting groceries and gas in in response of my preaching, teaching, marrying, and bearing. Well, that grace, that grace isn't a fair trade that Paul is talking about here. With grace, there is a permanent and eternal inequality. Grace is that which we give to those in our life who don't deserve it. Grace is what God gave to us. Unmerited. Unearned. Undeserved. So grace can only be experienced by those who recognize that they don't deserve it. You see, the Gospel is about Jesus. Who He is. That is the Son of God and God the Son. And what He has done, His life, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and how His merits are ours through faith and faith alone. Now the Bible says, in John chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Speak the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Speak that it might give grace. Now look, grace doesn't diminish sin. It doesn't just wave it away. It doesn't just pretend that it didn't happen. Grace pays for it. Jesus paid for the sins of the world. For my sins and your sins. Grace acknowledges the full impact of how the act or the words broke relationship. But what it does is it gives to the one who receives it, Jesus. It gives to the one who receives grace, the gospel. Are we giving Jesus to the people to whom we speak? Are we giving Jesus to the folks that we're talking about? Look, the next time you find yourself at the water cooler or your friend's cookout or at the hallway in the church or at the grocery store, remember E-N-G. Is what I'm saying edifying? Is it needful? Is it grace-filled? Is what we are saying, is how we are saying it, giving others Jesus? Now that's something to really think about as we go forward as a church, looking at uh, the phase two of our strategic plan, looking at the neighborhoods to which God has called us to serve and to minister. The gospel. Are we speaking Jesus? in all that we say, and in all that we do. Well, you, you, you remember that fight? You know, the one in the hallway of my fifth grade classroom with Mrs. Barnes. Well, I was in the back row, and I could see those two boys after Mrs. Barnes had gotten the crowd to go back to their respective classes. When Mrs. Barnes had finished and the kids had all gone back to their classes, She came back into our classroom, went up to the front, 
and began to teach class. But I'm in the back so I can see what's happening out in the hallway. Those two boys stopped fighting. They looked around, and they saw that no one was watching anymore. They circled one another one last time, and then they walked away from each other and went to class. Later that day, I remember going up to Mrs. Barnes and asking her, Mrs. Barnes, why didn't you break up the fight instead of just making everyone watching go to class? Mrs. Barnes said, well, like, when no one gives two fools any attention, they'll settle down and they'll move on. The best way to break up a fight is to get rid of the spectators, she said. I've never forgotten that. I hope you'll remember that the next time you see or hear folks talking bad, complaining, running other folks down. Just walk away from the water fountain. Leave the cookout. Tell them that you have to finish your grocery stop shopping. And like Mrs. Barnes said, when you don't give fools attention, they'll settle down and move on. Oh, and one other thing. Maybe you and I should probably remember that too, you know, when we're the fools. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord and speak Jesus. Amen.